My name is Utah Phillips, and this is Loafer's Glory, the hobo jungle of the mind. Say, mate, have you seen the mills where the kids at the loom spit blood? Have you been in the mine when the fire damp blew? Have you shipped as a hand with a freighter's crew or worked in a levee flood? Have you ride a grade in a wet in a grading camp or scorched in a desert line? Have you done your night stint with your lamp, watching the timbers drip with damp and heard the oil rig whine? Have you had your pay held back for tools you never saw or could use? Have you gone like a fool with the other fools to the boss's saloon where the strong arm rules? and cast your time for booze. I do no kicking at God or fate. I keep my shoes for the road, the long gray road, and I live it, mate. Hay foot, straw foot, that's my gate, and I carry no other man's load. I don't mind working to earn my bread, and I just as soon keep straight. But just like the preacher man said, I'm a ram and I've missed the gate. But I'm jogging along, jogging ahead. Perhaps I'll find it, mate. poem you just heard was by Bill Quirk, who is a popular hobo writer many, many years ago. He used to write for the Daily Worker, too. We're going to do some stories and songs and poems today about those who created the wealth of the West and not just those who merely owned it, the way we learned in our high school history books. I was in Phoenix, Arizona, I thought I was in Phoenix. I couldn't really find it, so I left. I decided to go up to a little town called Jerome, Arizona, and seek out an old-time folk singer by the name of Katie Lee. Uh, Years and years ago, Katie Lee, in the 50s, recorded a record called uh, Songs of Couch and Consultations, uh, satirical songs about the psychiatric profession. Well, she disappeared from many of our lives, um, lived up there in Jerome, Arizona. She wrote a crackerjack book about cowboy songs called 10,000 Goddamn Cattle. Well, I went to seek her out. And I did find her, by the way. She was writing songs about the Colorado River for Earth First and uh, uh, leading quite an interesting life up there. But on my way up, I passed through Prescott, Arizona. I was driving down the street, and I looked out the window and saw a street sign that said, Gail I. Gardner Avenue. Well, I stopped the car. I said, I know that man. I met him years and years ago at a, at a, a festival, Man and His World, up in Montreal, when the Smithsonian had brought a bunch of old cowboys up there to sing songs and tell stories. Gail I. Gardner was 75 years old at that time. Well, I stopped at the little Charlotte Hall Museum there in town, and I asked the woman behind the counter, "Uh, Mr. Gardner wouldn't happen to be alive, would he? And she said, well, he's 96 years old now and ailing. He's in the hospital, and we fear that he'll never be able to go back to the ranch. So I went over, and I spent part of the afternoon with him. Gail Gardner wrote songs and poems and stories 
around the time of the First World War that became stock and trade among cowboys all over North America. A lot of them didn't even know that those songs came from Gail I. Gardner. Well, I walked into his room, and there he was, sunk down in his wheelchair, a tiny man. Great domed head, completely bald, covered with the large liver spots. His eyeglasses, very thick, one side darkened because he could barely see through it, the other lens magnifying a, an empty socket in a grotesque sort of way. The high desert sun over the years had given him many small cancers which had to be cut away, his nose, his ears. The man was gradually diminishing right before your very eyes. But inside of him was that pillar of youth and energy still aching to break loose any way it could still find. He said to me he thought the cow pony was the smartest creature that ever lived. I said, how's that, Mr. Gardner? Knowing little of horses, he said, well, he didn't speak. He aspirated. Uh, I, he said, I had an old cow pony. He got too old to do the work, so I retired it from the range. Taught it how to point birds. I taught it how to point quail. Well, I got too old to hunt, and I sold my weapons off, sold that horse to a neighbor for I thought was a fair price. Neighbor come by the next day, said he wanted his money back. I said, how's that? Said, well, the horse won't go into the barn. I said, what does it do? Said, well, I get it to the barn. It just stands stock still with one leg up and its tail stuck straight out. I said, you got any chickens in that barn? He said, oh, yeah, I got a chicken house right up against the side of the barn. I said, here's what you do. Take your rifle. Fired off, yell, damn, missed again. It'll go right in there. Gail I. Gardner, a man like that is a sage. You, you cleave to a sage. Now, the, when he wrote a poem and anybody else did it, he demanded that he got every word, that you got every word exactly right. So, Katie Lee very kindly sent me a tape recording of Gail Gardner singing his most famous piece, Tying Knots in the Devil's Tail. And if he can't get it right, well, then who can? Now, he was in his late 80s when he was uh, on the stage in, in Prescott, and Katie Lee had to put her arms around his chest and hold him up so that he could sing into the microphone. So it was a little hard to do that and push the right button on the recorder at the same time. So it's got a little bit of an abrupt start. In any case... Here is Mr. Gail I. Gardner of Prescott, Arizona, singing his own Tying Knots in the Devil's Tail. Fiery peaks where the yeller pines go tall, old Sandy Bob and Buster Jig had a road near camp last fall. They taken their horses and their running arms, and maybe a dog or two, and they loudly brand all the long-eared calves that come within their view. And any old doggie that flapped long ears and didn't bush up by day Got his long ears whittled and his old hide sizzled in the most artistic way Now one fine day old Sandy Bob he throwed his seagull down I'm sick of the smell of burning hair and allows I'm a going to town So they saddles up and they hits him a lope for it weren't no sight of a ride and them was the days when a buckaroo could oil up his insides. They starts her in at the Kentucky bar at the head of Whiskey Row, and they winds up down by the depot house some forty drinks below. They then sets up and turns around and goes her the other way, 
and to tell you the God-forsaken truth them boys got stewed that day. As they was a-riding back to camp, a-packing a pretty good load, who should they meet but the devil himself a-prancing down the road? Says he, you ornery cowboy skunks, you'd better hunt your holes, for I've come up from Hellrim Rock to gather in your souls. Says Sandy Bob, old devil be damned, we boys is kind of tight, but you ain't gonna gather no cowboy's souls, thought you has some kind of a fight. So Sandy Bob punched a hole in his rope and he swang her straight and true. He lapped it on to the devil's horns and it taken his dallies too. Now Buster Jig was a Riata man with his gut line coiled up neat. So he shaken her out and he built him a loop and he lashed the devil's hind feet. For oh, they stretched him out and they tailed him down and while the irons was a getting hot, they cropped and they swallowed forked his years and they branded him up a lot. They pruned him up with a dehorning saw and knotted his tail for a joke. Then rid off and left him there, neck to a blackjack oak. If you're ever up high in the sire to peach and you hear one hell of a wail, you'll know it's that devil a-bellering around about them knots in his tail. Oh, Gail I. Gardner and tying knots in the devil's tail. I'm sure I have that. You know, it's a, it's the kind of music. You see, as I, you see, I, I, there were things I've always wanted to do on the stage that, that I've never been able to do. Like I would sit on the stage and I would recite that poem. You see, after talking about Mr. Gardner, but on the radio, I can have you listening to Gail I. Gardner himself. You know, <coughs> songs about the cowboy trade. The cowboys made it into the dime novels, the net mud lines, they made it into the movies. Not to demean the trade. It's a hard, hard trade. Uh, one of the booming trades. Uh, but after they made it into the movies, that became the image of the West. The, the true image of the West was the strong male figure who will act alone and act violently if provoked. I think that's exactly they want, the way they wanted us to be. We ne the movies and the, and the novels never dealt, uh, the popular fiction never dealt with the enormous populations that worked in the West, the loggers, the miners, the wheat harvesters, those who worked on the railroad. And that's what my intention is today, is to play some of their music and play some of those poems to broaden the vision of what the West is and who I am, where we really all come from. Logging up in North Idaho. There was an old logger up there by the name of Tom Lamb. Tom Lamb used to log any time of the summer or the winter. He was out in the forest, dead of winter, with his partner. You never go into the forest alone. You always take somebody with you in that time of year. Well, they were top falling. They were up in the tops of the big trees, falling the tops. And, and uh, a fella, his partner over the next tree, his hands froze, and that double-bitted axe hurtled through the air and severed Tom Lamb's head from its body. The parts fell down into the snow below. That fella skinned down the tree as quick as he could. He had read in a farmer's almanac or something that if you lose a limb like in a farm machine accident, that if you can find the part and pack it in ice and get to the hospital in time, it can be reattached with little or no damage. Well, Tom Lamb, they picked out, 
fellow picked up Tom Lamb's head and put it on his shoulders and packed that hard North Idaho snow around it. Well, they finished the shift. They went back to the bunkhouse to to wash up, and and then they went to the cookhouse uh, because they were hungry. Well, it was warm in there, and that snow began to thaw. They brought in the pork chops. Everybody lunged for him, including Tom Lamb, and that dislodged his head, which flew against the iron door of the stove with such force that it killed him deader than hell. That's hard to believe. Well, now, you know, there's a cowboy poetry gathering in Elko that's been quite successful. There have been smaller gatherings, like a logger poetry gathering up in Washington State that Jens Lund, a a folklorist up there with a lot of encouragement, from me included, got together. And I have a tape recording out of that. We're going to listen to Bill Yund of Chehalis, Washington, at the first logger poetry gathering, doing his poem called Snooze Power. For more than half a century, I've roamed these wooded hills. I've known a bit of misery, and I've had my share of thrills. The glory days of logging, when the power used with steam, still holds a sacred foothold in an ancient logger's dream. The misery whip and falling boards so vital to his trade have vanished in the great beyond. I know, I saw them fade. The mighty fur that once he used to hold his rigging high has bowed in grace to modern trees, steel towers in the sky. So power saws and rubber tires and engines run with gas have changed the day in every way. I've watched it come to pass. But as I watch the changing times and marvel at the trend, I see an old familiar act I know will never end. For loggers learned so long ago a trick for staying loose, three fingers from a round flat can of Copenhagen snooze. No engineer can draw a plan to make snooze power fit or how much snooze a logger eats or how far he can spit. Well, snooze power, Bill Young of Chehalis, Washington. I have my guitar picked up here. I'm not much of a guitar player, but I do want to take the opportunity to sing some things alive by myself. James Stevens worked in the logging camps a long time ago up in Washington State. He's the one who eventually, uh, in his later years, wrote the Paul Bunyan stories down. But I guess he's most well-known these days for having written a song called The Frozen Logger. He taught it to Walt Robertson, the Northwest Balladeer, and Walt Robertson taught it to Pete Seeger, and Pete Seeger taught it to me. As I sat down one evening was in a small cafe a 40-year-old waitress to me these words did say I see you are a logger and not just a common bum for no one but a logger stirs his coffee with his thumb my lover was a logger There's none like him today If you'd pour whiskey on it He would eat a bale of hay He never shaved the whiskers From off of his horny hide He'd pound them in with a hammer And bite them off inside 
My lover came to see me. Twas on a winter's day. He held me in a fond embrace that broke three vertebrae. He kissed me when he left me. So hard it broke my jaw. I couldn't speak to tell him he forgot his Mackinac. And so my logger left me off through the ice and snow, a strolling gaily homeward at 48 below. The weather it tried to freeze him, it tried its level best. At a hundred degrees below zero, he buttoned up his vest. It froze clear down to China. It froze to the stars above. At a thousand degrees below zero, it froze my logger love. Now they tried in vain to thaw him. And if you believe it, sir, they made him into axe blades to cut the Douglas fir. And so I lost my logger. And to this cafe I've come, where I vainly wait for someone to stir his coffee with his thumb. The Frozen Logger. Uh, old Walt Robertson passed away lately, but he was the first one to really go out and find the, the songs of the logging trades up in the Pacific Northwest. Recorded them for Folkways, I think, in 1954. Um, that's a long time ago. Butte, Montana. Butte, Montana. More raw energy in that town than any four towns have ever been in. It used to be the biggest town between Chicago and, and Seattle. The, they, had, they called it the hill out there, the, the, the richest hill on earth. Nobody knows how many billions of dollars Marcus Daly and other prominent criminals hauled out of that mountain at the expense of the people who worked underground. Yeah. In those days, long time ago, you had to have a rustling card. That meant you applied for a job in the mines, and you had to wait for a while while they wired all over the territory to make sure that you hadn't belonged to any labor organizations. Then they would give you your rustling card. That meant that you could could rustle the hill. There was a very fine mining poet that lived up there, well-known around Butte, but I hardly heard of any place else, by the name of Dublin Dan Liston. Well, my friend, fellow worker Mark Ross, up in Butte, Montana, has learned some of those poems. Mark, Mark is the finest tramp I ever met in my life. I mean, this is a consummate tramp. Mark Ross lived in Missoula, Montana, and he mer- moved down to Butte when he heard there wasn't any work there. Let's listen to... Mark Ross, do Dublin Dan Liston's The Situation in Butte. Streets now must be used for walking, not for purposes of talking, so read Henderson's instructions from the hill. With the help of Matthew Canning, John D. Ryan now is planning constitutional right of free speech here to kill. Old-time miners are blacklisted, men who openly resisted slave conditions made by Ryan in this town Leaders of the rebel faction who believe in direct action. Socialists who join the local all turned down. Creedon early put the ban on fellow worker Joseph Shannon. In Colorado, he can't get a job. 
When the mine workers would meet, Joe would always be on his feet, and his words were known to influence the mob. The trades and labor bunch have all have got a hunch, not to help the mass of rebels unemployed. Cause Con Kelly took a stand in deciding where they'll stand. If his orders ain't obeyed, he'll be annoyed. If those so-called union men, tools of Kelly's ACM, have declared to help the miners, they're not able. Twit infringe upon the laws to investigate the cause, so the motion has been laid upon the table. An injury to one is an injury to all. You yourselves may be the next to be turned down. So you'd better get together, for believe me, stormy weather is forecast for all the unions in this town. With your great AF of L, you have served the purpose well of the boss who always dictates all your action. You'll keep on fighting one another, scabbing on your union brothers, till the one big union will unite your factions. Dublin Dan Liston, recited by Mark Ross. Well, let me tell you a story. There was a great fire and explosion at the Speculator Mine in 1916. Now, there were supposed to be escape hatches to get out through the bulkheads, but the boss was cheap and they weren't there. Over 200 miners perished during that, that terrible event. You know, you go to Butte, Montana, out on the flats, below where the town is, up on the hill. You walk for, for miles through the Union Miners Cemetery. You will see the huge collective graves where everybody was put after the big explosions. But then you will see Serbian and, and uh, Croatian graves. You'll see Assyrian, Lebanese. You'll see tombstones in Arabic. Every kind of feet that trod the earth trod it at one time or the other up in Butte, Montana. I was looking for what I could find about the Speculator Mine Fire. I went to the Little Silver Bow Historical Society up there, which is in a warehouse. A lot of what they had was in boxes in that cold, cold room. Well, I went through a lot of it, and you know, I found that some of those miners that were trapped in the Speculator Mine and never made it out, they wrote letters to their loved ones inside their time books. And, of course, when they were finally exhumed, those letters were found. Well, I found one of those. A letter from J.D. Moore, a series from his time book, uh, written to his wife. And I want to read those to you. And then you're going to listen to a song by uh, Kate Brisbane and Jody Steckert that I made up. Another kind of grim story. I was going through a, a, a garbage pit in uh, in Park City, Utah. That was before it was a, a ski resort. It was just a, a mining town, Silver King Coalition Mines. Well, I found a little tin with a, like a small tobacco tin with a belt clip. I asked around and nobody would tell me what it was. And finally, Ken Webb at the little Photoshop, he said, well, he thought that was a morphine tin, that sometimes miners would carry morphine with them underground so that it got trapped that they, they wouldn't have to suffer, they wouldn't have to burn to death, and it was also a comfort to their relatives. Um, and, and, but many of them were Catholics, coming from Eastern Europe, many, many Catholics, which, of course, suicide is a mortal sin, and that's why it was a secret, and that's why people wouldn't talk to me about it. So I'll read you J.D. Moore's letters, and then we'll go right into the Miner's Lullaby. First letter. Dear wife, this may be the last message you will get from me. The gas broke about 11.15 p.m. I tried to get all the men out, but the smoke was too strong. 
I got some of the boys with me in a drift and put up in a bulkhead. If anything happens to me, you'd better sell the house and go to California and live. You will know your Jim died like a man, and his last thoughts was for his wife that I love better than anyone on earth. We'll meet again. Tell mother and the boys goodbye. With love to my wife, and may God take care of you. Your loving Jim, J.D. Moore. Second letter. Dear Pat, Well, we are waiting for the end. I guess it won't be long. We take turns rapping on the pipe, so if the rescue crew is around, they will hear us. Well, my dear wife, try not to worry. I know you will. But trust in God, everything will come out all right. There is a young fellow here, Clarence Marthy. He has a wife and two kitties. Tell her we'd done the best we could, but the cards were against us. Goodbye, loving wife. Third letter. All alive, but air getting bad. One small piece of candle left. Think it is all off. Fourth letter on the cover of the book. In the dark.
Well, here we are back again with the second half of Loafer's Glory, the Hobo Jungle of the Mind. That, by the way, was Blind Kenny Hall of Fresno, California, playing uh, the Good Neighbor Club. You know, that last piece we did, The Miner's Lullaby, I don't want to let that pass without remarking to you that what a what an awful shame, what an awful waste it was to have an industrial system where people in dire straits had to take their own lives or whether they where they had to die because the boss needed to make more money um, we fought and we fought and we fought through the labor movement to change those conditions and we have we we've got child labor laws we've got all kinds of things on the books that workers fit, fought for and bled for and died for unfortunately at a time of deregulation we are being prevailed upon to gradually move back to those times. We have to fight as hard as we possibly can to make sure that what happened to our grandparents and our great-grandparents doesn't happen to us and to our children. Woody Guthrie lived down in Pampas, Texas. Well, he, he came from Okima. He went down to Pampas to look for work. Couldn't find any. He started doing um, family counseling in a little shed where they probably had chickens at one time. He had a sign out on the road. People would, would pay him for his advice by giving him canned goods or a bag of beans. He had a sign out there on the post that said, Trouble don't cost nothing, so I won't charge nothing to fix it. Well, he said that he got a job on a ranch, one of those Texas ranches, and the rancher took him out on the porch, put his arm around his shoulder, and he said, You see, you see out there all that? My daddy fought for it, my granddaddy fought for it, and now it's mine. It, it's, it takes me, when I get up, in the, it takes me to three days to drive all the way around this ranch. Willie looked up and said, yep, had a car like that once myself. Farming, the wheat harvest, uh, the great wheat belt runs all the way from Oklahoma up to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, where the forest finally begins. I was in Saskatchewan with Ramblin' Jack Elliott and the NDP representative from the provincial parliament. There was a dam going to be put in there called the Rafferty-Almeida Dam. 
with a terrible drought going on in Saskatchewan. I mean, the worst drought that anybody could remember, and farms were going under right and left. So the provincial government said, if we build this Rafferty Alameda Dam, it will create a huge lake, and it will become a year-round recreation resort. And they sold that to the farmers as the, as the form of their, their salvation. Well, we knew that the provincial premier owned the land that that dam was going to be built on, uh, ostensibly to control the floodplain down at Minot, North Dakota. You know, we went to all these little towns in southern Saskatchewan and did a, a show, and then the NDP guy could talk about what a what a sham this was, what a sh- real sham this was. Um, he took me out to visit the stream that they were going to dam. I could step across it with one step. I mean, hey, some of those towns that we played in, like Weyburn, the farmers were so head up about getting this lake that we couldn't find a hall to rent, so we had to meet secretly in a in Forest Grove outside of town. I want to give you a poem here that I thought of when I remembered being up in Rafferty, Almeida, and remembered that, that awful, awful drought that the people were going through. This is by Wendell Berry. All day the crops burn in the cloudless air. Drouth lengthening against belief at night, the husbands and the wives lie side by side, awake, the ache of panic in their bones, their purposes betrayed by purposes unknown, whose mystery is the dark in which they wait and grieve. All may be lost, and then what will they do? When money is required of them and they have none, where will they go? Many will go in blame against the world, hating it for their pain, and they will go alone across the dry, bright, lifeless days, and thus alone into the dark. Others, in grief and loss, will see more clearly what they have loved, and will belong to it and to each other, as in happiness they never did. Hearing, though the whole world go dry, the hidden rainbow of their hope. Wendelberry. I have a good friend, old friend up in Calgary, ran the folk club there by the name of Tim Rogers, and right now I'd like to hear him sing an old song, a rare old song about a young fella going off to the wheat harvest on the prairies of Saskatchewan, the Prairie Harvest Song. Oh, hark and listen to the whistle of the train. We're pulling from the station for the land of the golden grain. And when we return again, our friends will drink our health. For there's no place here where there is such cheer as the land of the golden pelt. Oh, Molly dear, I greatly fear that soon I will be gone. I'm going away on a harvest terrain to the far Saskatchewan to reap the grain on the western plain where the buffalo used to roam. And I'll leave you alone in your island home, my dear Colleen Bond. Oh, Molly dear, when night is near and I am far away with willing heart, You'll do your part, and for me you will pray. When the pigs are fed, they go to bed, and the kids play on the lawn. And you'll heave a sigh for your absent boy. 
in the far Saskatchewan. Oh, Molly dear, dry up your tears, I'll soon be home again. With pockets lined with the gold I find in the fields of the golden grain. And nevermore I'll go a sore to the far Saskatchewan. And leave you here, my Molly dear, in your little island home. Oh, hark and listen to the whistle of the train. We're pulling from the station and we're homeward bound again. And when we return to home, our friends will drink our health. For there's no place here where there is such cheer as the land of the golden pelt. The Prairie Harvest Song, Tim Rogers. It's a grand old song. Well, he talked about the train pulling out of the station, and of course, in those days, there weren't any roads into the logging camps, up into the mines. There were no cars. You couldn't get to the wheat harvest. The only way you could do it was on the train. Now, this young fellow says he's down at the station. <laughs> well, that's riding the cushions. For the most part, you're booming workers. That boom, the boomer. You go to from boom town to boom town. The booming workers rode on the freight trains. One of the best was the Great Northern, the Billy Goat, crosses the Great Divide up by Glacier, the, uh, the Pig's Island, the big yard in Minneapolis or St. Paul, on the way, all the way out to Seattle. That's where they ran the silk trains, the fastest trains on earth. And, and the tramps, the really good old-time ones, knew when the silk trains ran. Of course, you had to ride the tops. Well, the railroad was that long steel thread that stitches together the essence of the American experience. What is the essence of the American experience? Well, I agree profoundly with Leslie Fiedler from the University of Buffalo, who said, the essence of the American experience is running away from home. Let's listen to a piece that's going to haunt me to my grave. I have no choice over what my tombstone is going to say. And here it is, Moose Turd Pie. I'll tell you about the worst job I ever had in my life. Worst job I ever had in my life was working for the, for the, uh, was it the Santa Fe? Yeah, it was the Santa Fe Railroad, south of Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeah, that's the old Mormon muddy mission, you see. It's way out in what the Navajos call the boonies, out in the desert. Now, the job was gandy dancing. Now, gandy dancing used to be in the old days. Gandy dancing was uh, when the Irish were building the railroad. Uh, of course, the first transcontinental railroad was built by Irish laborers. And they used these long-handled shovels called uh, Irish banjos that were made by the Gandhi Shovel Company of Chicago. Now, the Irish laborer would take the wide end of the shovel when he could find it, and he would <laughs> jam it in under a rail or a tie, and he would climb out on the long handle, do a little jig step out there, and that would lever the tie up or the rail up, and you push gravel in underneath it and tamp it down, and that levels the roadbed. See, that's what gandy dancing is. Leveling the roadbed so the damn train doesn't fall off as it goes by, which is just a big drag for everybody. <laughs> now, they don't do gandy dancing the normal way anymore, see, uh, like they did in the old days. Nowadays, they run three cars out on the line. They run a box car out there that's... Uh, a bunk car, you sleep in it, got bunks in there 18 inches apart. And then you got a tool car with your tamping irons and your tongs and 
and your double jack hammers and spikes and all of that equipment for you to do the job. And then you got a cook car. I mean, there's no restaurants anyplace around, so you got a cook car. Pots and pans and a coal or wood-burning stove and a long table down the middle to eat at. Only thing they don't hire is a cook. That's because they're cheap. Saves them money. Rule is that in that crew, they're supposed to pick among their own members who's going to be the cook. Now, they don't try to do it sensibly, like draw lots or decide who the best cook is. What they do is they wait and find out who bitches and whines and pisses and moans the most about the cooking. And they say, all right, wise guy, you think you can do better, you get to be the cook. Well, that was me, see. <laughs> Old alligator mouth. The new man on the crew, and that was the worst food I'd ever had. I mean, it was dog bottom pie and pheasant sweat. <laughs> otter water. It comes out of an otter. It's a terrible, terrible stuff. Some people might think it's a delicacy, but I thought it was garp. So I complained, and they said, all right, wise guy, you get to be the cook. That made me mad, because I didn't want to cook. But I knew if anybody complained about my cooking, that they were going to have to cook. <laughs> Armed with that knowledge, I sallied forth over the muddy river. I was walking around among the cheat grass and bunch grass there, and I looked down, and there was just a hell of a big moose herd. <laughs> Biggest damn moose turd, that was a real steamer. <laughs> I looked down at that meadow wafer and I said to myself, Self, I'm gonna bake up a big moose turd pie. Cause if anybody complains about my cooking, they're gonna have to cook. So I tipped that pasture pastry up on edge. I got my shit together, so to speak. And I started rolling it down toward the old cook car. Boom, boom. I got it down there and leaned it up against the side and I climbed up in the cook car and I baked up a hell of a big pie shell. And I baked that moose turd in it as slick as you please. And I crimped the edges with my thumbs and laid strips of dough across it and garnished it with a sprig of parsley, a little paprika. It was beautiful. Poetry on a plate. And I served it for dessert, waiting for the first hint of a complaint. Well, this giant dude come in, about five foot forty. I mean, he was big. Throwed himself down like a fool on the stool. Picked up his fork. Took a big bite of that moose turd pie. Well, he threw down his fork, and he let out a beller, and he yelled, My God, that's moose turd pie! <laughs> it's good, though. <laughs>
Uh, you could ride the reefer holes, uh, uh, a refrigerator car that had a basket in one corner with a lid on it, and they'd run the car up to the ice-loading chutes and, and fill that full of ice. But when it was empty, you could get uh, four or five people down in there. Or if you were really in trouble and needed to get someplace and had no way else, to, no, nothing else to ride, you'd ride the rods. There were sway rods under the uh, boxcars, and you'd ride down there uh, on the rods. Well, let's listen. Here's a song by Ralph Chaplin. Now, Ralph Chaplin, the the old Paint Creek miner, is generally known as the man who wrote uh, Solidarity Forever, which is still Labor's anthem both here and internationally. But he penned many another good song. We're going to back, back to Mark Ross right now and listen to him sing Ralph Chaplin's Song of the Rails. Life here in town is too damn monotonous Sticking around at a regular job All the time somebody bossing and spotting us I'm not cut out for a laboring job Things here is much too precise and pernickety sable I'd just as soon be in jail Us for the road and the wheels to go clickety Clickety click on the glimmering rail It's us for the road and the old hobo wagon Loafing around in the wind and the sun Fluffing at night in the soft of the hay Getting there you worry your work to be done Say you ready to beat it by a cricket Jump on a freight, be off on the trail Hearing the noise of the wheels that go clickety Clickety click on the glimmering rail Now judges will call you ashamed of society Brakemen will bounce you off onto the ground Tramping's no cinch, but it's full of variety Here we're just plodding and plodding around Honest, I'm getting all feeble and rickety Say, boat we'll wither up, sure, if we stick Well, let's grab a rattler with wheels that go clickety Clickety, 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 click Say, ain't you ready? Jump on a freight, be off on the trail Hearing the noise of the wheels that go clickety, clickety, click on the glimmering rail Mark Ross, the world's greatest tramp and a vigorous young gentleman, I'll say. Well, of course, singing, talking, telling the poems about all this, like I said earlier, what happened was that the Union came in. It never came into the cowboy trades except for the great Tascosa strike uh, down in Texas. And by the way, uh, the, tax cas- the book about the Tascosa strike was written by Karl Marx's sister. Believe it or not, and believe me, that's something that these old cowboy poets don't want to know. I've been sharply criticized at those events for bringing that fact up. The Union. White Pine Shorty. Fella, I made his acquaintance, so that I knew, learned about him from uh, uh, a fellow that lived up in Harrison Flats, uh, Idaho, Burt Russell. White Pine Shorty had an unusual organizing style. See, they'd hire stool pigeons in the logging camps, so he would hire on as a stool pigeon that got him into the camp. But then at night, he had this little tin box. I still have that box that was given to me. And he sneaked down to the worker's outhouse. See, the boss had his own crapper up at the office, 
Uh, you want to start worker education, do it in the bathroom because the boss never goes there. That's good info. File that away. He'd go down there to the worker's outhouse, and on the inside of the door, paste what the Wobblies call silent agitators, little stickers with a political cartoon and sentiment on the front, and on the back a kind of glue impervious to diamond drill and atomic blast. It's cornstarch paste. We thought the formula had been lost, but it's cornstarch paste. Now, you file that away, too. It will make something everlastingly affixed to the surface to which it is appended. Well, he would cover the inside of that door with silent agitators. Might take that logger two or three days to figure out that door was selling it, door was trying to tell him something. Now, then he'd get out on the other end of that misery whip that two men saw, and he'd say to the fellow on the other end, Hey, Frank, what do you think about that on the inside of the outhouse door? Well, a conversation started. Then the conversation moved into the bunkhouse at night, and they all realized they all had the same problem, so they got a committee together, you see. That's how the union was born, through direct action and, and organizing on the job. You can't organize off the job. Well... White Pine Shorty could organize a whole logging camp without opening his mouth. He just gave those workers the tools they needed to become self-organizing, and that's the best kind. Those were great singing events, those informal meetings in the bunkhouses and in the, in the mining camps. Let's listen to one of those great old songs sung by Haywire Bruce Brackney called Hold the Fort. We meet today in freedom's cause and raise our voices high. We'll join our hands in union strong to battle or to die. Hold the fort, for we are coming, union folks be strong. Side by side we battle onward, victory will come. My comrades, see the Union banner waving high. Reinforcements now appearing, victory is nigh. Hold the fort, for we are coming, Union folks be strong. Side by side we battle onward, victory will Bruce Brackney, here we are, Bruce Brackney, and hold the fort. Now, 
Listen to a song I made up a long time ago. It's a boomer's love song. She'll never be mine. My love is a river where the white waters pour. I've hunted and trapped her through the gates of Lador. She sings through a curtain of cold mountain rain. Where I dug her bright silver in the high Coeur d'Alene She'll never be mine She'll never be mine I've won all her treasures, the simple and fine I guess she'll never be mine My love's a cantina where I drink with my friends I've called her Dolores or sometimes Cheyenne I've followed her begging all over the West my love is a headlight on the Midnight Express She'll never be mine She'll never be mine I've won all her treasures, the simple and fine I guess she'll never be mine My love is Montana and the high Douglas fir Many long summers I've labored for her My love is the wind rose of dry autumn corn that grew on the land where my children were born She'll never be mine She'll never be mine I've won all her treasures, the simple and fine I guess she'll never be mine My love is a life that a boomer will lead You bought her with lies and you chained her with greed My love is a dreamer, I'll follow the dream you say she's a beggar, I say she's a queen Someday she'll be mine, someday she'll be mine I want all her treasures, the simple and fine I know someday she'll be mine That's it for this edition of Loafer's Glory, the Hobo Jungle of the Mind. I'd like to thank you for listening to me. I look forward to passing time with you, and uh, when you're in my life and I'm in yours, I'll be here for the foreseeable future. From Lawrence Ferlinghetti. I am waiting for my case to come up. I am waiting for a rebirth of wonder, and I am waiting for someone to really discover America and wail, and I am waiting for the discovery of a new symbolic western frontier, and I am waiting for the American eagle to really spread its wings and straighten up and fly right, and I am waiting for the age of anxiety to drop dead, and I am waiting for the war to be fought which will make the world safe for anarchy. And I am waiting for the final withering away of all governments. And I am perpetually awaiting a rebirth of wonder. <laughs>